Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus, as we have been looking at, is your word. He is your living word. And Lord, we honor your presence here today. And we are asking, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as we look at your word, that you would speak to every single individual heart in this room and uh, that your grace would come through your word, that we would be empowered to do what you're speaking to us. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to do anything to get you to love us or to uh, receive us. You've already accomplished on our behalf what needed to be done. You, you went to the cross for us. You paid the penalty for us. And Lord, now we just simply yield to you and receive your lordship, receive your leadership and your... your um, kingship in our life. And we do just that. Declare you to be king. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. So folks, what, we're, what we've been looking at, what we are looking at is kind of there. I've, I've said this a couple weeks ago, but we do have a couple new people here today. So I'm just going to say it again. There used to be, uh, for those of you who've been around the church kind of world for some time. There was a wristband that said on it, WWJD, and uh, that stood for What Would Jesus Do? And uh, we're looking at it from maybe a bit of a different angle over these next, over these couple weeks right now, and, and have been looking over the past couple weeks, of more of, of what WDJD. So in other words, what did Jesus do? So we're not looking, we're not trying to model uh, the life of Jesus um, and don't hear me, we want to live like Jesus, but not because we have the power and the strength to be able to do it in of ourselves. Uh, my experience is this, that if I try to model the life of Jesus, I, I struggle like profusely. It's, it's that whole raising of the dead thing. I don't know how to do that on my own and various other things that he does. But in fact, if Jesus, as the scripture says, lives inside of me, then I'm actually wanting to release and live in his will as he speaks to me and guides me. And as imperfect as I am, he still chooses to use me. And so we're looking rather at what did he do, because looking at what somebody has done is an indication of who they really are, right? And that is the, the point of these next number of weeks. Even in our early days as a church, the most important thing is we want this church founded upon the revelation of who Jesus actually is. So we're looking at what he did in order to know who he is, which transforms our life as we actually begin to see him clearly as he is. And uh, as I've said m many times, the revelation, as our human heart really sees who, who Jesus actually is, it causes our heart to explode organically with worship. And I don't just mean Sunday, what we just did with guitars and that kind of, I mean a life of passionate pursuit of Jesus. So if you'll look with me, you can look at Luke chapter 11. If you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app or anything like that, Luke chapter 11, what we're looking at today, and we might be looking at over the next couple weeks, is one of the things that Jesus did. We looked at the fact that he was called 84 times in the New Testament, the Son of Man, and we looked at the, what, what that meant. We looked at the fact that he was born of a virgin last week, and therefore he wasn't just the Son of Man, but he was the Son of God. And we looked at kind of what that means to us, the fact that he's both fully man and fully God. But today, we're looking at the fact that Jesus' number one public enemy was something that I call religion. 
And that may be confusing because if you grow up like I did, religion was a positive thing. If somebody's religious, well, that's like they're probably a better person than the average person. Uh, but so let me explain what I mean by that. His biggest enemy in the scriptures were loosely this group that we call the Pharisees as well as the scribes. So when I say religion, I'm using a word to associate those guys. So the Bible one time does say the word religion in it, and, and it says in, in James what true religion is. So if you understand what I'm, I'm saying, true religion, the, the Bible says, is to feed the poor and is to clothe the naked and visit the imprisoned and help orphans and, 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 and that sort of thing. Um, that's, a, that's a paraphrase. That's true religion, but religion is man's attempt to do service to God where God isn't actually the one leading. That's what we're looking at. That's Jesus' number one enemy. So, so, how many have ever heard religion used in that context before? Is, am, I, am I saying a new thing? or Most people have heard it in kind of a negative context. So, let me make this very clear. When we say religion, we are not talking about a particular style of church. So, in, in some cases, there are some people who are Protestants, evangelicals, who would look at Catholics and label them as religious. Why? Because they sit, kneel, stand, genuflect, and, uh, and we just think that that's just tradition, and that's meaningless and empty, and it's just, you know, it's just religion. Well, in fact, can I challenge that a bit? I know some Catholics. In fact, I grew up a Catholic, and I've been to a Catholic Mass, and I've had the wonderful experience of genuflecting and in my heart, letting that represent something of sincere worship. And I've stood during the, 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 the singing of, of worship and enjoyed with reverence and awe the beauty of Jesus. And I've sat down to, to receive something of the reading of the, of the scriptures. So, so there's, there's meaning in this. If it's empty and there's no heart engagement, yes, it's religious. But can I challenge us and say what we just did right now and in some other churches that could be labeled as Pentecostal or charismatic or whatever, people can be doing all this crazy stuff and worshiping and doing all this thing, and actually it's just a show because that's what we do on Sunday. That's as much religion as anything else. Do you follow what I'm saying? What I'm saying is it's not to do with what church you're in, what type of church. It has to do with this organ right here, a heart connection with Jesus. That's actually what he's about, as Minda was saying earlier. So what is religion? Religion is what has distorted church and Christianity over the past number of years. I've had a couple conversations over the past couple weeks with people in the community, and if I could just be blunt, um, the conversation has gone great, and then, and, and, and I'll just be blunt, the conversation has gone great, and in the context, these people two separate people, completely independent of one another, both African-Americans in the community, the, the moment they found out I was a pastor, immediately, assuming that I am an extension of colonial gentrification, uh, kind of an imperialist white thing. Now, some of you in the room could be like shocked to hear that. Like, why would people think that? And there could be other people in the room who know exactly why that thought would come through their minds. Here's the reality is the church has not done historically a great job all the time in representing Jesus. Would you agree? 
And there are, there are distortions. And the church has been a vehicle of very evil things. How did that happen? I want to suggest to you it all boils down to this thing of religion. What is religion? I've got a little definition that I came up with. Are you ready? Man-made efforts to serve God without actually following him. You see, every time we try to do what is good, when in fact all God wants is our heart, we end up messing it up. Because we fundamentally are not okay. And we fundamentally need God. And even our best efforts still mess things up because of this thing called sin. All of us have this thing called sin. And the only thing that can conquer that force and can cause us to be used by God to do what is good in spite of ourselves is Jesus himself. And if he's going to use us, what that requires is our heart actually following him which is the very thing that Jesus said to those who really wanted to take him seriously, was to follow him. If we can follow him with, with our hearts, we can be used by him. And that is what we are saying today, is let's be a church who isn't trying to do good. Because Detroit doesn't need our efforts to be good. God doesn't need our efforts to be good. What we need, what Detroit needs, what God is calling us, is to follow the Son of God and allow him to do what only he can do. Cool? The antidote is following Jesus. So Luke 11, if you're already there, I'm just going to read this. Jesus rebuked religion. I just want to, just, just so that we kind of have an idea of what we're talking about and kind of establish this from the scriptures, this thing about Jesus having an enemy of religion. I just want to read a couple passages, Luke 11 and Luke chapter 15, uh, not the whole chapters, but just to establish this. So, so Jesus rebuked religion, Luke 11, verses 43 through 48. Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees! Because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. And what he means by that is people are unknowingly defiling themselves by associating themselves with these Pharisees. Now, our perception of Jesus in most modern-day churches, does Jesus meek and mild. He is our good shepherd. But I want to challenge us a little bit and suggest that the Jesus that we read of in the scriptures is actually a bit in your face. And he's actually not mincing his words and he's, he's speaking some direct things for our good. Is that okay? I know, I know I love the fact that he's gracious and he's wonderful and he's my shepherd, but he's also a roaring lion. And he speaks directly to these Pharisees in this way. Why? Is it because he didn't wake up and have his coffee? like some of us might have? Or is he just like, you know, uncontrolled in his anger and irritation sometimes? No, actually, there is redemptive purpose in why he spoke so directly because religion, my friends, is the number one biggest enemy of the work of the kingdom of God in the earth. Why? Because it's the most deceptive force. It is the masquerading of spirituality with the cloak of righteousness when in fact underneath that cloak is no God at all, just man. And the very problem that we got into in the first place in the fall in the garden was man's sin. And for us to put a cloak over that without actually finding God's solution is an affront to the very thing that Jesus did on that thing right there. Are you following? 
So he speaks directly because we need to be woken up from our pride that thinks, I'm okay, I don't need Jesus. If you can, if you can just register with me right now, if you've got the faith to do it right now, you can say to yourself, I need Jesus. Maybe I received him as I did in 1990, whatever it was, 95 or something. Today, I need Jesus. Today, I'm not okay without him. I need to know what he's saying to me and follow him today. Not because I need him to, in order to love me, because I want to follow his plan and for him actually practically to be Lord of my life. So let's continue reading. Verse 45. One of the experts of the law. So check this out. He, he's, he's, he's slapping the Pharisees upside the face verbally, essentially. And then, and then the, one of the scribes or the experts of the law say, hey, you're offending us. You know, like, and how many of you ever done that? Like, you, you see a fight going on, and then you do the stupid move of stepping into that fight. He probably shouldn't have done this. Let me just read, read along. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus, meek and mild, the gentle shepherd, says, And you experts in the law, woe to you, <laughs> because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you built tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. And I just want to make this point, that Jesus did not get mad in his ministry at anybody other than the Pharisees and the, and the, and the scribes. Now that's significant, because I want to ask this the question, what does the church today get mad at? Hey? Uh, sorry, I'm speaking like a South African. I've been living there for the past seven years. Right, I should say? What does the church get mad at today? Picketing and our signs and getting mad at liberal politics, getting mad at whatever else. What do we get mad at today? Jesus got mad at one thing, and it was religion. And I, so I think that we can take two things from that. One, we shouldn't be getting mad and voicing our anger at anything except for that which Jesus, makes Jesus angry. And number two, we should make in our own hearts enemy what Jesus made an enemy. In other words, I want to be free from religion. So if we're sitting in a pew this afternoon thinking about, yeah, man, I wish this, this person, I hope he's hearing this, you're probably operating in the same thing the Pharisees did. Let's let this fall down on our hearts and cause us to see the redemptive solution that Jesus has for our problems this afternoon. So secondarily, I just want to read this. Luke chapter 15, the, just the, two, the first two verses. Jesus received sinners when religion was rejecting them. Luke chapter 15, 1 and 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So religion, my friends, distorts our heart towards people. We judge them. It's not our call. It's not our mandate to judge. But in so doing, to the degree that we are religious and operating in that same thing, it causes us to become a church, a people, that distort the picture of what Jesus is at the detriment of that which the Bible calls sinners. In other words, they look at church and they see it as the arm of gentrification and white imperialism rather than the sacrificial love of the God the Father to redeem humanity. That's what we should be. Are you hearing me? 
And uh, that's just one example that's relevant perhaps to the city of Detroit. I'm, it could be anything that has distorted the image to where we think of church, think of Christianity, and we think of something negative. That is horrible and something that grips my heart in prayer. So what is religion? Let's just look at this, and then we'll look at what is the solution. But religion is focused. I want to make sure that we're very clear on this whole thing. Religion is focused on self and performance, whereas true faith is focused on Jesus. I'm going to say say that quickly one more time. Religion is focused on self and performance, whereas true faith is focused on Jesus. There is a big difference between the two. Thinking of myself, looking at myself, am I measuring up? Am I right? And I, I, I remember as a, as a young Christian, when, right after I became a, a, a follower of Jesus, I remember having conversations with others who hadn't yet made that decision. And the whole conversation always got around to morally, do I stand up? Well, I'm a good person. You know, I'm, I'm good. I think Jesus loves me and and that whole kind of thing. Do you know that that's not even the equation of what Jesus is wanting for us? Do we, do, does our morality stack up high enough so that we can be acceptable and loved by God? It never will be. But in fact, Jesus has done something else to, uh, to, to free us from this thing. And I, I want to bring this up. The two trees that were in the garden, Genesis chapter 2. So how many of you know the, the, the story of, of, of the fall of creation? There are two trees in the garden, and these simple two trees that were at the beginning represent and get down to the bottom of how God created us, what this thing is about, and actually religion versus true faith. So there are two trees in the garden. You might be able to remember them. There was the tree of life, and then there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if there are trees in, in my backyard, perhaps I might call one an apple tree or an orange tree, and that would make sense. I don't know a lot of trees that we call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That may seem like a bit of a bizarre name to give a tree. But actually, God was speaking to something very significant and deep in calling it that. Because he wasn't actually talking about fruit on a tree or even necessarily a physical tree, although I'm sure it probably was a physical tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, check this out, represents the law. What is the knowledge of good and evil? It's the law. As in when God gave Moses a law, a system of do's and don'ts as a means to relate to God. The knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. That very thing, the knowledge of good and evil, causes us to focus our attention on ourselves. Am I good or am I evil? Is my action good or is it evil? I'm looking, I'm navel-gazing, looking at myself. Is my behavior right? Am I right with God? When in fact, that very way of looking at things is the very thing that produced, according to Scripture, death in us. Looking at ourselves and, and being conscious of good, evil, right or wrong. And what was the other tree called? The tree of life. Thank you. The tree of life which is completely different from knowing what is good and evil. Life is living with God, living, abiding in relationship, his heartbeat beating its blood into me and me sharing life where I'm hearing his voice in the garden and I'm following that voice, living in divine life. I'm not looking at myself. I'm not necessarily okay and I never will be okay by myself. I'm looking at him and following him. Cool? 
Is that making sense? So let's read that scripture quickly. Genesis 2, verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Down at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you would surely die. I want to I say in the new covenant, in following Jesus, we no longer are following Jesus according to any system of right and wrong. There is a difference between me following a system of right and wrong because let's be real here, guys. There's this whole thing of how Christians should act. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Of, of you coming to church, and I'm, <laughs> I've had a conversation recently with somebody, and immediately it's all about, now that you're a Christian, what movies you should listen to, what music you shouldn't listen to, what movies you shouldn't watch. It's this whole church culture that we, that we create. When in fact, God is not trying to create any kind of a system of do's and don'ts. He's wanting our heart to follow him. If we follow him sincerely in our heart, he puts desires in our heart and causes us to grieve over things that we shouldn't want. Out of that, we stop doing certain things and we start doing other things. And we, but it's not about trying to prove our righteousness to God. It's about simply giving him our heart, hearing his voice to our heart out of a relationship, and following that voice into the crazy things that Jesus leads us into. I would way rather in life, be in life, that's what Jesus has redeemed us to, than simply proving my righteousness by following the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And let's be liberated from that thing. Letter, excuse me, religion is rules-focused, faith is spirit-focused. So we just said that religion is focused on self and performance, True faith is focused on Jesus, but religion is also rules-focused, which we just said, whereas faith is spirit-focused. And if you look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 6, it says this. Very important, and it ties into this whole thing of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and the tree of life. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, "...who also made us able ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit." I want you to take note of that. Letter and spirit. Tree of knowledge of good and evil, life. For the letter kills, but the spirit makes alive. So when we talk about the letter, what are we, what are we actually talking about? The letter is, is talking about following the law. Following the Mosaic law, what God said, the Ten Commandments, giving to Moses, and the various statutes and ordinances that God gave to, gave to uh, the Israelites. The letter. It's, in other words, it's the letter. It's the written word. Whereas Paul is suggesting that there's something completely different called the spirit. The letter actually kills. How many of you know in the New Covenant we probably don't want to be killed? Or we probably don't want to be walking around with the same death that the rest of the world is walking around in? We want to actually show something of divine life. It will never be accomplished by following the letter. It's only by following divine life. And so what is the letter? It's the written command. It's the knowledge of good and evil. It's working from the outside in. What is the spirit? The spirit is, is un, it's revelation. The spirit is, is unveiling truth in our hearts. 
the spirit is actually working righteousness from the inside out. So let me, let me give you an example. I used to live in South Africa for the past seven years, and uh, tacos, which we all would be familiar with, are not as commonly known there. I think Mexican food is becoming more popular around the world, but it's still kind of mostly relevant to this region of the world, and so it's not really as well known there. So Minda and I had, I, I don't know what it was, maybe a, a leaders meeting, a church leaders meeting or something like that, and we decided to share our North American goodness with the people of South Africa and had tacos. And have you ever had ethnic food and you're kind of like a little awkward as you're putting it together and you want somebody to tell you how to do this because I actually don't know how to do this? Anyone ever been in those shoes? Only me? Okay. Indian food or whatever the case is. So there, my, my best friend, Stu, was uh, going through the, the line assembling the tacos and he's like, Paul, you need to help me out here because I actually don't know how to do it. Let me, let me make a confession. The tacos we were serving were essentially Tex-Mex. It wasn't like the authentic thing. I'm sorry, because I know we're near Southwest Detroit where we eat the real thing. It was like the hard, crunchy corn shells and what I grew up eating. Anyways, so Sue's like, you're going to have to tell me how to make this, this taco. Now, if I was giving him the letter of taco construction, I would have told him, according to my wisdom, that you put the sour cream in first and then you put the hot ground beef, and then you put the cheese, and then shredded lettuce, followed by tomato, perhaps salsa on the top. In fact, let's go with salsa on the top. If I would have done the letter, but that would have just told him how to do this without actually imparting the divine understanding of taco construction. Whereas I lent myself to impart to him the theory behind why that is the best way of making a taco because cream cheese, I mean, excuse me, sour cream tends to get messy and it spills off of the top when you take a bite. So rather put it on the bottom. If you're taking notes, you might as well want to get your phones out. This is, this is for free. And then here's, here's the, the, the kicker, the hot ground beef with cheese directly on it. Why? Because melted cheese is better than the non-melted cheese, and it melts when it hits the hot ground beef rather than being on top of the cold shredded lettuce. So you do the cheese next, and then the shredded lettuce, then the tomato, and then do some salsa on top of it. His life has changed forever. But, but the, the, the idea is I could have just told him exactly how to do this thing, and he never knows why. It's just how we do it, and it's what must be done. It doesn't matter if I understand it or not, whether my heart's in it or not. I just do it this way, as opposed to seeing something as silly as that is of why. And God wants to relate to us the exact same way. He does not want any person in this room simply doing what you ought to do and not even getting why. He is your father. And he wants you to understand with him, sharing with him his heart, his passions, and his desires to fuel what you do or don't do in this world based on divine power and, and, and the heart of God. That is the luxury that we have. Now, some of you may wonder, well, I don't even really know what you're talking about because that sounds cool, but like I don't hear things from God. I don't feel things from God. Well, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But that is the way that we are called to live, and it's liberating. It is bondage to live under the, the yoke of what I must do or what I can't do. It is liberating, 
And, and let me make this clear. I'm not saying that we should go out and live any which way we want because we're not religious. Do you hear me? That is not the point of what we're talking about here at all. I'm saying instead of living any which way I want and instead of living just because the church always says to do this, I don't want either of those. I want to authentically follow Jesus, which is, my friends, the most radical and oftentimes scary place to be living, and yet it is the freest. Because I am surrounded by divine presence and power, not because God has graciously come to me. I mean, yes, it is because God's come to me, but actually it's because I've postured myself to be where he is and followed him. Every person in this room has the ability to be with Jesus, with him. Where he is, what he's saying to you today, you have access to that place. That is the sweet spot. So what does Jesus say about all this? He says that if we're just doing the letter, if we're just following the rules and the instructions, he calls, he calls us whitewashed tombs. Does anybody have a clue what a whitewashed tomb is? In other words, that's a grave. And men back in those days would take good care to wash into, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Whitewashed, I guess. To make sure that it's a solid white, sorry, good-looking, beautiful, ornate structure, but inside of that tomb, guess what exists? <laughs> Death. And he says that those who follow simply the letter are like whitewashed tombs. They're, they're putting on a facade on the outside to give the right appearance of righteousness when in fact death is still inside. If you don't believe me, listen to this. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Scribes and Pharisees represent what? Religion. For you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outside, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Let's take that to heart this afternoon, can we? That we don't want to be a whitewashed tomb. We don't simply want to be following a system of righteousness or morality, some moral code, which makes us feel as though that we're good enough to be acceptable to God and we're, we're good and when in fact all of us need Jesus every day, every moment of every day equally. And anything that gets into that place to make us feel that we're good enough or that we're not good enough, either way, gets us to a place where we're not coming to him is our biggest enemy to the true life of God in our lives. So religion will do of one of two extremes. It'll either cause us to feel pacified and that we're doing okay, or on the other hand, it'll, it'll drain us feeling that we have to do this thing and we have to we have to do this because we want to show that we really love Jesus and so we're actually going to go to church. Oh my gosh, it's the worst. I want to suggest we should, go to, we should be a part of church community. But if that's the way it is, maybe, maybe we've disconnected from Jesus somewhere along the way. If we're just doing it because like, we have to do it or else we're not real Christians. I don't want to be a part of that. Do you? Do you want to be in a room full of people who are like, yeah, I'm here. I must really love Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is so boring. No, actually, I'm hungry for Jesus, and I know I need him. And it's for that purpose, my pursuit of him, 
that drives me to do the things that I do, even if I don't feel at times like doing them. If it's Jesus, he can shift my heart and give me a desire to do the things that he's called me to do. So, so for time's sake, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over. I've got a couple passages of Scripture, but I, I, don't, I don't think we actually need to, to get into it. I, I actually just want to share a story with, with you and then mention a couple things of what Jesus said as the solution to the problem. And so I've shared this before, but I think it is, um, I think it's worth sharing again, is the, the, how I became a Christian as it relates to what we're, we're talking about right here and right now. So, uh, and again, I think it's good to share the same story even uh, multiple times. Uh, and some of you are, will share the same story multiple times here and in other places of, of how you actually became. So I did not grow up as a, uh, as a Christian as I understand it now. I did not grow up a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. I wasn't in a family that was following Jesus, and I wasn't in a, even a church environment that led me to have any understanding of what Jesus had actually done for me or, um, or how to access a relationship with him. Okay. So, but what happened in my senior year of high school, being a part of a, uh, a private school at the time, part of the senior privilege of the school that I was a part of was that you got to be taught your religion class, which is actually what it was called, religion class. You got to be taught religion class by Father Richard Lopez. And Father Lopez was like a really cool guy. Now, back in that day, I don't know if you guys, if many of you would remember, but uh, anybody remember MC Hammer, who later became Hammer? So, so you guys are going to think I'm such a dork, but uh, do you remember Too Legit? <laughs> Is that right? Too Legit. Too Legit to Quit. Anybody remember that? Thanks for the applause. Awesome. So, okay, this has become the embarrassing part of the story. <laughs> Anyways, so, so Father Lopez was such a cool guy. And back in those days when that song was like a cool thing, it was such an amazing thing to see this priest. And he was like getting into this song and he was doing the motions. And he was the most joyous, like lovely guy. And, um, and I, I, I never met him. But, and I, again, I wasn't like a follower of Jesus. I was like your typical teenage renegade, you know. I was into a lot of un-Jesus-like things in my life. And so anyways, at the, I remember folding my clothes right before the first day of my senior year. And as I was doing that, I felt impressed to begin praying. And I, I felt specifically impressed. I wasn't a Christian. Felt impressed to pray over two things. And I felt the nearness of God as I was praying. And one of those two things that I prayed was, God, I feel like f this Father Lopez has something that you, th from you that I want. And I'm asking that when I get to have class with him, I'm asking if there's something that you want to teach me through this man, then teach me. Felt, I felt his presence, his nearness in that prayer went on, went into my, into my routine. Senior year started, great year, weeks go by. Frankly, a lot of the class, even though he's like a really fun guy, there wasn't any profound thing until one particular day, he has us go through this exercise. And, uh, and he has us all, everyone in the class, shut their eyes. 
and to picture in, in your mind's eye the picture of Abraham Lincoln. And you can even you know, imagine that in your own head, probably. And so I did that. I pictured the face of Abraham Lincoln. And then he says, okay, wipe that, that image clear. And he said, okay, now I want you to picture the face of the closest human relationship that you have in this earth. So possibly your mom, your dad, or one of your best friends. And so I pictured the, the picture of my closest human relationship. He said, okay, now I want you to wipe that, that image clean. And I want you to think about Jesus and ask yourself the question, do you, do you feel like you know Jesus like Abraham Lincoln or like your best friend? And, and, and so then it began to, to, to click into place. What, what happened in that moment was I had the realization that I actually didn't know God personally. And as Father Lopez started to talk, I began to realize that he did know God personally and could legitimately, truthfully say that his relationship with God was closer than his closest human relationship. That, that began to expose something in my heart that I'd never even thought about, that you could know God in that, in that kind of way. And then he began to say, Jesus' death on the cross was explicitly for that purpose of knowing him. And if we have really received the gospel, it should be that our closest relationship, the fruit of the gospel, is that we actually know him. And that began to expose, I don't have that, but it also began to make loads of sense, which, in, which birthed inside of me the hope and even the, the fuel of passion that, oh my gosh, I can know God, like creator of heaven and earth, I can know him. And that, that blew my mind. So that night, I, I went to bed. And I, I'd gone through hours of the day. I'd done my stuff. And uh, I went to bed, and I had this nagging feeling. There's something, there's something not right here. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, Father Lopez's hours back in the morning ago. I hadn't even thought about it since then, but I remembered that moment that, he start, that Father Lopez had said that we can know God. And what he said was, catch this, he referenced a verse that had stuck out to me over the past number of, uh, like, two, about two years that I had been, I had heard and I had been wondering what it was about. And it was, that, it was this, that Jesus said, ask and it shall be given, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. Have you ever heard that scripture? And so what Father Lopez said was that Jesus says, if you seek, you will find, and if you seek this relationship with him, you're guaranteed to find it. That's what he said. That's all I knew of the, of the gospel, if that's even the gospel, I don't know. That's all I knew. But I went home and I remembered that moment when I was in bed about to go to sleep. And I remembered, oh yeah, I need to pray about that. And so I began to pray. And I began to say, God, I actually don't feel like I know you. And as I began to pray this way, it was like I sensed again that nearness that I had sensed months back when I had felt led to pray that prayer about Father Lopez. Please remember that prayer? I began to sense his nearness. But it was like I was coming into a realization about myself, something that God had always known about. And finally, we both are aware of it, that I don't really know you. I know a whole stuff, bunch of stuff about you. You're in the Abraham Lincoln category. I've got information. I've been hearing a religion class since I was tiny. I definitely don't feel like I actually know you, not anywhere close to my closest human relationship. So I began to say, I want to know you. 
And in fact, here's the logic that came upon me in that moment. If God really is God, and if he is really like loving and powerful, then there can't be anything more fulfilling than having a pers personally knowing him, right? So I began to, to say, God, I want to know you. And you said, seek and you shall find. And so I'm wanting you to know I'm seeking that relationship. I don't know how, but I'm, I want you to know I'm seeking it. You promised that I would find it. So I'm kind of holding you to your word. And which he likes us to do, by the way. He likes us to take his word seriously. And as I began to pray that, no preacher, no anything, I, be I began to understand the gospel. And in that moment, I began to understand that Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for my sins and that I need to repent for my sins and receive forgiveness. So I began to repent and I began to think through all the sins and this list became too long and I just eventually said, God, I, I just repent that I'm a sinner. And uh, I think in that moment he said, bingo, exactly. But I also began to realize in that moment, I began to re remember something about Lord, Jesus is Lord and you have to confess him as Lord. And, and I, it began, the penny began to drop. I had an aha moment, and I, and, I, and I realized I repented my sins, and I confessed, Jesus, you are my Lord. And in that moment, I understood what that meant. That meant I was giving my life to Jesus. That meant that I would have a relationship with him, but this relationship wouldn't look like, Jesus, I'm me, and, I, and you be who I want you to be. It's Jesus, you are Lord, as in... You are my Lord from this point on. I give you my life. And in that moment, what the Bible says is I became born again. I want, you may be saying, why are we talking about this? I'll tell you why. What started in that moment was the pursuit of knowing Jesus, knowing him. And it's that pursuit that is the antidote to religion. I did not enter into a life of learning the Christian moral code of doing this and not doing this so that I could prove to the world and to Jesus how good I was from there on out and I could live the straight and narrow. My pursuit became, Jesus, I want to know you as my Lord. I want to know your will. I want to know your heart. I want to know you. And it's been one step at a time of discovering and receiving who, what he's saying, who he really is, receiving that, stepping into that, and then going another step that has led my, now my wife and I the, down the path we have gone and into wild, amazing things that God has done throughout the last number of years, not because we're so good, but because we just are believing, right? And I want to be a part of something that is not about you and me, but is actually about him. If we could just get out of the way and actually really practically put our faith in him. Let me make this clear. I'm not saying that I'm so great, we're so great. That's not what we're saying at all. But I am saying that is the way. So if I could, if I could just, as I said before, read a couple verses of the antidote to this whole thing. When Jesus came, there were multitudes of people who were following him. But not everybody actually was following him. A lot of them were just onlookers that were interested. But then there were some who saw the miracles that he did, 
saw the provisions of multiplied fish and loaves and various other things, and they became convinced about something about Jesus. That he's not actually just a man, he's not even a prophet or a great teacher, he's the Son of God, he is Lord. And if he is, everything else in life outside of following him is empty and meaningless, lacking eternal purpose. But Jesus is actually Lord, and what he began to say to people who said, I want to follow you, is just that, then follow me. So let me read these three verses to give us clarity on the way forward. Luke 5, 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 18, 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When people followed Jesus 2,000 years ago, as he walked around in the earth, they had to physically follow him. I want you to imagine the reality of that. Some cases that meant leaving your job, in many cases that meant leaving familiar things having to do with family, having to do with your rep reputation, having to do with things that you trust in in this earth. And that meant following Jesus, not really even knowing where he's going. Somehow, 2,000 years later, when we talk about following him, we don't even think that it looks anything like that. And I want to say to follow Jesus today looks exactly like, not exactly, but it's the same thing today as it was then. It is leaving your life and saying, Jesus, from here on out, I follow you. You want to be free of religion? That is the only posture in this earth that is free of religion, is the posture of following Jesus.